Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Mysteries, sci-fi, memoirs, so many choices. How do you find the right book to read? If you're like me, I start several books instead of focusing on just one, and the likelihood I finish them is, well, pretty slim. Summer is traditionally seen as the perfect season to catch up on reading because we supposedly have some free time. So what books are you taking with you on vacation? I'm in the middle of the book, Educated by Tara Westover. Are you reading it? If not, tell us about the one you are reading. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Coming up, we're going to hear from a Connecticut author, also a theoretical physicist who's written a graphic novel. More about them in just a little bit. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live uh, with your recommendations. Now, NPR has great resources to help you find the best books. Its book concierge pulls together a year's worth of good reads from staff and critics. Joining us now to tell us more and to help you add some books to your reading list is Petra Mayer. She's editor at NPR Books. She's joining us from the studios at NPR in Washington, D.C. Petra, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So tell us about a little bit about how NPR Books compiles uh, a lot of these reviews and recommendations, because we're imagining you get a lot of books to the newsroom there. Oh, my God. <laughs> you don't want to see our great wall of books. It's ridiculous. It's uh, My desk is just piled up and toppling over. And yeah, we have a lot of books. Um, so the recommendations come from all over the place. Uh, if you're talking specifically about the concierge, that's a mix of things. Uh, we get recommendations from our reviewers um, and also from uh, what people really like are the staff picks. Everyone wants to know what NPR staffers are reading, and that's always one of the most popular categories in the concierge. So, you know, basically the short answer is I cannot possibly read every book in the Great Wall of Books, so I pay people with really good taste to do it for me. <laughs> now, uh, you must read some of the books. Though. Oh, yeah. So tell, tell us, uh, you know, when... Uh, you're picking up a book to, to either uh, give it a review. I mean, how how do you make the decision when you have so many choices at your fingertips? Oh, gosh. You know, if I read a book and it really speaks to me, then I will, you know, find a reviewer that I think will suit it and, and badger them. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I also rely on my reviewers because, you know, I've, I've, I've cultivated, a, cult, excuse me, cultivated a group of people whose tastes I rely on, whose instincts I rely on. And if they come to me and they say, this book's really interesting, I'll look at it. And if I agree, then, you know, I'll have them review it. Um, so it's, it, it's a combination of things, really. And then what about listener and reader engagement in terms of your summer reading polls? Tell us uh, how well uh, people are weighing in on different genres and which one is the genre for this summer. It might surprise people. Oh, well, it's actually very appropriate. This is Friday the 13th. It is also the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein this year, and our summer poll is horror, uh, which is a personal challenge to me. I am the world's biggest horror wuss. <laughs> I, was, I was traumatized by a copy of Cujo in a beach house when I was a little kid and uh, was scared of even being licked by dogs for years after that. But uh, we felt it was a good time to do uh, a horror poll. So the polls, I should say, uh, we do a different genre every year. They are quite popular. I look at our metrics and, you know, people are still passing around polls from years back. The science fiction poll is very popular, the romance poll. Um, they're not straight reader polls, really. What they are is, you know, we invite our readers to submit nominations for their five favorite titles of 
whatever the given genre is that year. And this year we got close to 7,000 nominations, I think. Um, And then I pick through them all and I take the top vote getters. It's usually about 300 books. And they go to a panel of judges um, this year. They're usually authors or critics in the field. Uh, this year, we're really lucky. We have uh, Stephen Graham Jones, Grady Hendrix, Tanana Reeve Dew, and Ruthanna Emerus, all amazing horror and dark fantasy writers. And what they'll do is take this massive list, and we have this conference call that is punishing. It goes on for like four hours. And we take the list and we beat it down and we build it back up and we balance it out and we come out with this curated final list of 100 that mixes a a large majority of what the readers send in with what the judges bring from their experience and their taste. And and we get this final curated list of 100 that we really hope will sort of represent the best of any given genre Mm -hmm. and that will sort of give you a a rabbit hole to go down if you need to find some books. Now, when we uh, think about horror books, obviously, uh, many of us will think of Stephen King. How many uh, times did voters uh, pick one of his books? (laughs) You had to ask that, huh? Yeah, so Stephen (laughs) King. um, (laughs) We had, like I said, we had close to 7,000 votes. And when I counted up the spreadsheet, uh, 1,023 of them were for Stephen King. Cujo, so, Cujo made the list? <laughs> no, I did, but I don't think it made the semifinals. People were really into The Shining and mm. Salem's Lot. Uh, and um, so I actually polled the judges, and I think what we're going to do is, rather than just pick a single Stephen King title to represent his entire body of work, we'll just say, look, Stephen King is his own thing. He gets his own entry in the poll. It's special just for him. So you mentioned the judges are uh, other authors who write horror books. So I'm curious if you could uh, give us um, some ideas, some recommendations from NPR Books. If we are brave enough to pick up a a horror (laughs) book uh, during vacation, in my hands, I actually have one uh, that's been recommended, I believe, called The Cabin at the End of the World. Oh, yes. So uh, that's Paul Chairman. Excuse me, Paul Tremblay. Um, he's a more recent horror author, but will really scare the bejesus out of you. My my reviewer said that he didn't sleep for a week. This is a very horror in real life. It's not supernatural at all. It's about uh, a couple and their young daughter, and they have a cabin in the woods. And I'm not going to spoil it, but I'm just going to say one day some very nicely dressed people show up at the door and say the world is going to end, and only you can stop it if you do this terrible thing. So it's very, you know, it's not. It's not ghosts. It's not axe murderers. It, it is, it's terrifying because it's something that could possibly happen to you. Now, I'm about to head to Vermont next week to camp in the woods. Probably shouldn't take this with me. I, I wouldn't, <laughs> but maybe, you know, there are people that like roller coasters. Those people are not me. You know, like it, it's, it's all down to your tastes. Uh, on, again, joining us from NPR today is Petra Mayer, editor at NPR Books. We're talking with her today uh, to help you compile a summer reading list. We want to hear what you're reading. Uh, the number 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Petra, we know a lot of people, instead of holding a hard copy of a book, they're downloading uh, audio books. Is that becoming more and more popular, especially when we're thinking about um, having the time to actually sit down and read? Um I haven't noticed a particular trend, but just sort of an informal polling of my friends. Sure, a lot of them, especially if you have a long commute, people love audiobooks because it's just, you know, if you're stuck in traffic, it's great to have someone tell you a story. Um, I, I have a particular fondness for Doctor Who audiobooks read by my favorite doctor, David Tennant. And if I can sit in my car and have David Tennant read me a story, I'm about it. Now, we talked about uh, horror uh, books, but what about some other genres and some recommendations for our listeners? Because everyone has a, a different taste. And let's start with uh, maybe some general fiction. Sure. Um, one of the books that uh, is really buzzy right now is a book called uh, There, There by Tommy Oren. She's a Native American author. This is his debut. Um, 
and it's about a group of um, Native Americans in Oakland. And he writes about sort of people that, you know, don't have what you think of as the stereotypical Native Native American experience there. You know, he talks about the smells of gasoline and rubber instead of the smells of sage and cedar. And it's this group of disparate people who are all on their way to a big powwow at which something big and frightening is going to happen. Not, oh gosh, we should put a spoiler warning on this conversation. But I think all the reviews have mentioned that, so I'm okay. Um, anyways, it is a, a propulsive, fascinating novel about an aspect of Native American experience that I think doesn't get as much play. Um, it's really worth your time. Uh, also, uh, when we think about genres, there's the romance uh, genre. Ooh, my favorite. And I'm curious, uh, one of the, the reviews, the recommendations from NPR Books is uh, the book, uh, The Kiss Quotient by Helen Huang. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was a really buzzy book this summer, too. And normally, I tend to sort of kick a little bit and push back when, when lots of people are saying, oh, this book, this book, this book. Mm. And then I read it, and oh my god, it's really good. So uh, Helen Huang is on the autism disorder spectrum, and she uses that experience uh, to build her main character, who is uh, an econometrician. Not that I know what that is, but it is something very smart involving numbers. (laughs) Um, And it's very interesting because the character Stella, you know, she's on the autism spectrum, but it's just a part of her character. She uses it to fuel this career that she loves with numbers that she's really good at. And she hires a a male escort to help her with her intimacy issues. And of course, because it's a romance novel, they fall in love. And uh, it's just, it's a wonderful book. I really enjoyed it. Uh, when uh, you're thinking about reviewing romance, are there a few skeptics uh, at NPR Books about maybe why pick this genre? Yeah, who cares what <laughs> they think? No, really. I mean, this is something I, I think and talk about a lot. For a long time, you could see these think pieces about mm-hmm. don't be afraid of, of, don't be ashamed of reading romance. But I think we're past that. Romance is a genre just like any other. It has good books and bad books, just like there's good mysteries and bad mysteries, good thrillers and bad thrillers. The only thing about romance is that it is, you know, a, a billion dollar industry that's by and for women, which I think lets it in for a lot of criticism that other genres don't get. But uh, we have some great romance recommendations uh, on the site. And uh, if our listeners want to find out more about some of the books we're talking about today, you can go to our our Twitter account, at Where We Live. You'll tweet out some of these titles that Petra Mayer, again, is mentioning, editor at NPR Books. We also want to hear from you. You can join our conversation uh, throughout the hour, 860-275-7266. Petra, we're getting a tweet from a listener, Jill, uh, who writes, I decided it's time for me to fill in some holes on the list of classics I've never read. So she's tackling Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence. I'm curious of how classics um, play a part in some of the, the recommendations that NPR Books is putting out there, or are you focusing more on what's new? Um, that's an interesting question, Like, because I think everybody has vast holes in the list of classics. I was I was traumatized by Edith Wharton in high school and never really <laughs> went back, because you, you know, try asking a 15-year-old to understand what's motivating Lily Bart, it doesn't work. Um, so with classics, we don't cover those as much as we maybe should, because there's just so much new and interesting stuff coming out, and we tend to think that people will find the classics on their own. Although with the horror polls, with the polls are specifically designed to include things that are maybe not current. And of course, Frankenstein, things like Frankenstein and Dracula and some of the classic Gothic horror novels, those are definitely going to be part of the poll. So that is a way in which we do address the classics. Um, 
there's always libraries. Yes, libraries. Uh, and we're going to hear from a librarian uh, coming up uh, in the show. Um, when we talk about other genres, what about sci-fi, fantasy, even the dystopian novel? Oh, yes. Sci-fi and fantasy. That's you've, you've, I'm, I'm a giant nerd in case you haven't figured <laughs> that out. So those are some of my favorites. We uh, like nerds. Yay. Um, so... Uh, one of my favorite authors uh, in fantasy is Naomi Novik. Uh, people may know her because she wrote the Temeraire series, which is basically the Napoleonic Wars with dragons. And if you like Patrick O'Brien, try those. They're amazing. She has lately turned to doing fairy tale reworkings. Um, the most recent one came out in, a couple years ago. It's called Uprooted. It was one of my favorite books that year. And she's a new one called Spinning Silver, which I think is out next week, which is her reworking of Rumpelstiltskin. And she just, she has amazing female characters, amazing female friendships, wonderful world building, and the way those two things work together and the relationships between the characters drive the story and are seamlessly part of the world. They're just, oh, I, they're the few books that I keep paper copies of to hand to people, and you know that means something, right? Definitely. Uh, and I was thinking about uh, when I mentioned dystopian novels, uh, we know that uh, Hulu has really made Handmaid's Tale very popular. That's based yes. on a book by Margaret Atwood. Are we seeing a more popularity about dystopian novels thanks to uh, this, uh, this revival on, on television? I would say that there is a boom in feminist dystopias mm. right now. Um, dystopian novels have been big for a while. You know, anytime there's lots of worry about the way the world is going, you're going to get a, a crop of dystopian novels that reflects that. There's climate fiction, uh, you know, which deals with climate disasters and drought and floods and what's, you know, New York going to be like when half of Manhattan is underwater. There are, there are certainly three or four that I can think of, although the titles aren't immediately jumping to mind, um, feminist dystopias that are out right now. And I think you can trace that to The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, we, you had mentioned earlier that uh, when you hear a lot of buzz about a book, you tend to maybe want to, uh, you know, avoid uh, jumping on, on the bandwagon. But I am curious about if you've heard about the memoir Educated by Tara Westover, and how do you uh, focus in on uh, nonfiction and memoirs? I haven't. And actually, I heard you mention that in the introduction and thought, ooh, I need to read that. Um, we, um, it's interesting. Nonfiction can sometimes be easier to place on the shows. I am a, a review editor online. So I look at what the shows are doing. And it's very, it's, it's sometimes it's easier for a show host to say, here's a nonfiction book about, you know, something that's in the mm -hmm. news, or there's a narrative that we can talk about. Um, we did just bring on a new nonfiction editor, so we're actually going to be focusing more on nonfiction going forwards. I'm really excited about that. Um, but yeah, I tend to sort of stick more to fiction myself. Mm -hmm. I can say here at Connecticut Public Radio, we are inundated with uh, nonfiction uh, being sent to us from different publishing houses. Uh, also, uh, you know, books related to uh, the news and uh, contemporary issues and politics. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's interesting about uh, Tara Westover's story, and, I, and maybe it's uh, similar uh, to other books that have come out uh, over the last decade, like uh, Jeanette Wall's uh, Glass Castles, but really pulling the curtain away from family dysfunction. This was a woman that was raised by Mormon survivalist parents uh, in Idaho. Um, and, um, I'm writing this down. She, and she uh, wasn't exposed to public education until she was 17. She would go on to study at Cambridge. And uh, this is something that I believe is on New York Times bestsellers uh, list. And I'm just curious, again, is that what draws people to memoirs? Um, you know, this very personal connection, but also we all have a little bit of dysfunction in our lives. And to read uh, someone's uh, account where it's a lot worse, uh, what, they've, what they've encountered. Yeah, I think it's, 
you know, the desire to walk in someone else's shoes. The memoirs that draw me the most are memoirs from people whose experiences are completely alien to mine that I would never be able to relate to unless I actually picked up their book and went, okay, what is your life really like? And so when you when you mentioned, you know, raised by Mormon survivalists, mm-hmm. my ears pricked up because that's something I really want to read, that to get into the mind of somebody who's been raised in that milieu and figure mm-hmm. out why they think what they think, why the people around them think what they think. I mean, that's what memoir... Modern memoirs, anyways, like mm-hmm. historical memoirs, I'm, uh, you know, I'm interested in because if it's somebody, you know, that's a part of history, I want to see what they were thinking at the time and how they were involved with what was happening in their world. Um, so I guess there's that's not really one answer. There's a lot of things, but I think it has to do with empathy and reaching out to people through pages. Uh, we're getting another tweet from a listener, Helder, for summer reading, recommends Hodgman's Vacation Land. Just finishing that. Also, finally reading Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. Oh. It's too It's too bad that we've lost uh, uh, that very talented man. But that is a very popular book. And to see that resurgence, unfortunately, when someone passes, but the idea that people are, are wanting to read about, um, you know, something where a lot of us may not have that experience, including what, when he was working as a chef. Absolutely. Chef memoirs are a real interesting genre. There's a whole bunch of them. Um, yeah. It's, and also, uh, Kitchen Confidential is a really fascinating document of its time. I mean, it's kind of interesting, I think. Anthony Bourdain mm-hmm. later on felt a little bit bad about the image of swaggering bad boy chefs that he had helped create in that book. But it's still, I mean, it's just fascinating. It's also, you know, everybody reads that book and buys the knife that he recommends. I have one in my kitchen, too. <laughs> uh, you're listening to Where We Live. Petra Mayer with us from NPR Studios. She's editor at NPR Books for helping you compile your summer reading list. David's calling. David, uh, what are you reading? Uh, I'm, I'm- actually thinking about rereading a book that I really loved. Uh, Annie Proulx is a prolific author of the author of Western stories, but she did one in uh, set in Maine called Shipping News about sort of a misfit fellow who becomes uh, very accustomed to living in a new place and people get used to him and it's kind of a bit of a romance to a town and uh, people in it. Thank you, David, for your call. Uh, Petra, let's talk about some Westerns. Westerns? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, the, the closest thing I have to a Western, I will say, actually, just before I jump in to, to Westerns, rereading is a great pleasure. Don't discount it. You know, my parents used to say to me, why are you buying that book? You've already read it when I was a kid. I was like, because I want to reread it. If you love a world, you want to go back to it. Um, but the closest thing I have to a Western, gosh, this year would be um, Lawrence Wright's uh, amazing book, God Save Texas, which is, a, uh, it's nonfiction. It's not, you know, a Western Western, but it's, um, he's from Texas and it's uh, all the different chapters deal with different aspects of te- Texas life and history. He's the guy that wrote Going Clear about Scientology. He's a really amazing uh, journalist and nonfiction writer. And if you want to, we were talking earlier about sort of empathy and understanding mm-hmm. other people's experiences. If you want to get some insight into Texas, it's a great book to pick up this summer. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We want to hear from you as we tackle our summer reading list. If you have a recommendation, definitely give us a call, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Petra Mayer is going to stay with us, and we're going to bring into the conversation a Connecticut author, and we're going to talk more about young adult uh, choices out there and hear from a librarian as well. Stay with us.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about summer book recommendations. With us from NPR is Petra Mayer, editor of NPR Books. And throughout the hour, you can go to wmpr.org slash where we live for more about some of the books we're talking about. Also check out our Twitter feed at where we live. Uh, joining the conversation now is a Connecticut author, uh, Chandra Prasad, uh, who grew up in North Haven. She's written several books, including On Borrowed Wings and Breathe the Sky. And today she's going to talk to us about her newest novel, Damselfly, published by Scholastic. It's her first young adult novel. Chandra, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I want to let our listeners know, too, they can join our conversation by calling 860-275-7266. But tell us a little bit about yourself, Chandra, and why young adult fiction? Well, um, I've always kind of written on the line between adult general fiction and young adult fiction. And for a long time, I didn't want to write young adult fiction because I thought of it as the ugly stepsister of general fiction. But in the last 10, 15 years, uh, there have been a, there's been a tremendous surge of amazing young adult literature. And now I feel thrilled to be a part of this you know, club of authors. Uh, Petra is with us from uh, NPR Books. Uh, we're just talking about young adult genres. Is that true that over the last decade or so, there's just more popularity and where we're seeing crossovers, where adults are reading these books as well? Oh, absolutely. I think um, young adult is really a bastion of great storytelling right now. And it's, yeah, I think over the past 10 years, there's been just an explosion in that genre. Um, yeah, young adults, great stuff. Uh, what I like about your book, uh, Chandra, uh, Damselfly, is it has quite a diverse uh, group of characters. So tell us a little bit about the story. Oh, absolutely. So um, just a quick history of why I wrote it. In eighth grade in public school, I read Lord of the Flies. And at that time, the teacher said, a Lord of the Flies, um, in it, William Golding, the author, created the perfect microcosm. And I thought to myself, that is not true <laughs> because there are no girls in this book and there is no diversity whatsoever. All the boys are pretty much from the same socioeconomic status and background. So ever since that time, I've wanted to write uh, a Lord of the Flies type book, not a retelling by any stretch, but a book that had the same setting and the same themes. But I wanted to put a lot more diversity and put a, a group of characters that modern readers could relate to. Uh, we have an excerpt of your book, Damselfly, on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. But it starts with a plane crash uh, where you have a group of teens uh, on an island. And tell us a little bit about uh, the protagonist, uh, Sam, and how um, if you drew anything from her, a background from your personal background. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, so on the island, there are both boys and girls. But interestingly, the girls quickly become the dominant force. And there are two main characters, like you said, Sam, and I do share some parallels with Sam in that she's mixed race, and I can talk more about that in a second, but I feel very strongly about including mixed race characters in my books because there's a real dearth of them in literature and specifically in young adult literature. So um, Sam is uh, very self-conscious. She doesn't have a strong sense of self yet, but her best friend, Mel, is amazing. Um, I don't know those of you who remember MacGyver. <laughs> I do. <laughs> the 80s show. <laughs> I don't know. But she's almost like a, a teenage girl MacGyver. She mm -hmm. is a naturalist. She's a survivalist. She knows a lot about nature and botany. And she is the natural leader for this group of teens. So you have when you have these two girls together and their friendship, um, I think a lot of boys and girls can very much relate to them. 
Uh, you mentioned uh, Lord of the Flies. Uh, your book is uh, describing again the relationship to this classic novel. It's not a retelling just with new characters. Yeah. But what are um, some of the the themes you're trying to tackle in your Damselfly? Well, in writing Damselfly. I was very much aware that I wanted this book to be used as what's called a parallel or linked text in classrooms. And that's become a popular phenomenon among teachers. Uh, They use a modern YA book in sync with the, the classic. And the idea behind that is that kids find the YA read more accessible and more relatable, and it often provides fresh inroads into the classic. So it's kind of a win-win situation. The kids emerge with a better understanding of both the classic and the YA novel. So with Damselfly, I purposely did use um, similar symbolism, a similar setting, uh, some of the same allegory within the book, but it's a wholly original tale. There is really, you know, no overlap in in terms of the the plot. Um, But even though we have girls at the fore, there is just as much violence, just as much uh, human, you know, misbehavior, I guess you can put it. It's just different than in the classic. Now, this book came out earlier this year? It did, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I've been hearing really positive things from um, really uh, very positive things from teachers and students. They have, in fact, found this book to be really relatable. And it's a quick read, you know, it's really at heart, a fast-paced adventure tale. So it's very easy to kind of pick up and plow through as opposed to, you know, classics. So the feedback has been very positive. I was getting drawn in myself, and I had to uh, put it down so I could watch a little bit of the one of the governor's debates last night. But it's definitely uh, really pulls you in, and you want to keep – it's a real page-turner. And that's what a lot of people are looking for is a book that they want to finish versus uh, losing interest, putting it on a shelf, and then trying to find time again uh, to pick it up And because we have so much to do in our, our daily lives. Uh, but you also mentioned earlier about why you made a, a very concerted effort to include – mixed race characters uh, because growing up as a child when you're reading books you're not seeing a lot of that um, as as a woman of color that's exactly right right um, so I remember uh, growing up and um, I'm half Indian so I'm half Asian and I remember growing up and really looking for books that had characters who I could relate to on that level and and finding nothing just nothing And sadly, uh, not much has changed in terms of uh, mixed-race books. There's a great organization called the Cooperative Children's Book Center, and they track diversity in children's lit. And when I say children's lit, this is everything from board books for infants up through uh, um, YA fiction that's, you know, very advanced. And um, the good news is that there has been a lot more diversity in most of the ethnic groups and racial groups both including characters of color and authors of color, um, although still uh, not as much as we would like. But the bad news is in 2016, out of 3,700 children's books, only 10 of them had mixed-race characters. And why does this matter? Am I being nitpicky? No, because mixed-race kids are the single fastest-growing population right now. Uh, They're bigger than any other single race group. And in fact, one out of every seven infants now is mixed race. So it's a huge demographic and it's not being served. And um, I think the publishing industry is just starting to kind of come around to that. 
Uh, in, in studio with me again is Chandra Prasad. Uh, she's a Connecticut-based author. Her newest uh, novel is a youth, a young adult uh, fiction, Damselfly. With us from NPR studios is Petra Mayer here on Where We Live as we talk about uh, summer reading. Petra, could you add to that uh, what uh, you and your staff are seeing in terms of diversity? I know NPR Books uh, uh, had uh, a piece written about how uh, when uh, there is more of an effort now to bring more people of color uh, and, and to feature uh, their writings, but also, the themes are more diverse than what um, the stereotypical idea of what someone of color is going to write about. Yeah. Interestingly enough, uh, we just ran a piece um, from the author Silvia Moreno-Garcia, who's also just amazing. Um, her most recent book is called The Beautiful Ones, and it's uh, a sort of tale of, it's set in a sort of fantasy analog of, of old France, and there's magic and intrigue and, and drama. It's great. I ripped through it in an evening when I should have been working on futures, <laughs> which is always what happens to me. But um, she, yeah, she wrote a, a really interesting essay for us about the fact that like so often she feels like authors of color are consigned to writing about trauma and, and difficult things. And, and she called it sort of the trauma buffet. I think that was a quote from a friend of hers. But she wrote this uh, roundup for us of, of beach books by authors of color. Uh, and there's lots of good suggestions in there. Um, there's a, a, an Indian mystery involving an unexpected expected elephant. There is a lovely sort of slice of life love story set in Tokyo. There's a, a really funny novel about life on the reservation. There's some great stuff in there. Um, so yeah, that's um, one of the things I think about, you know, increasing diversity is, is that is that increasing viewpoints and unexpected things that you don't think about. Um, when you bring in more voices, you get more stories. It's always great. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Allison's on the line. Allison, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? We're doing well. So you are a children's librarian? Yes, I am. I am a children's librarian at Wallingford Library. So tell us, we're talking about uh, young adult uh, fiction. Uh, tell us how you and uh, your staff are, are helping uh, both uh, elementary school kids, middle and high school students uh, be excited about reading in the summer. What are some of your recommendations? Sure, sure. So um, I have talked, I'm going to talk about a couple of books that are all from the 2019 Nutmeg Award list. This is a, a list of 25 titles that have been chosen by public and school librarians. And then all the kids in Connecticut to, get to vote on these books, and the winner is chosen in the May of, May of 2019. So one of my favorites is a picture book called Alan's Big Scary Teeth. It's by an author named Jarvis. Um, he's a, the scariest crocodile in the jungle, but he has a secret. At night, he takes out his big, scary false teeth, and one day he loses them. And when the, all the animals in the jungle laugh at him because he lists and he isn't scary anymore, um, he learns uh, the power of friendship and kindness, and it has really bold, um, wonderful illustrations. Um, for the middle grade kids, kind of children who are learning how to read, we want to get them hooked on a book that they can love. This is a book that's the first of a series. It's by Juana Medina, and it's called Juana and Lucas. And I really think that kids who love um, books by, about Judy Moody, Clementine, and Lola Levine will love Juana because she's a little girl from Bogota, Colombia, who loves drawing and reading and her superhero, Astro Man, and especially her dog, Lucas. What she does not love, though, is her, what she calls the English, um, learning how to speak English. She's a spunky heroine, and she learns the importance of tackling a new, lang a new language um, in a story that's easy to read, and it's filled with loads of animated illustrations that we think kids would love to pour over. 
And for the older kids, kids who are kind of in the upper elementary school ages, say fourth through sixth grade, we have a wonderful book that everybody here on the staff adores. It's called A Handful of Stars by Cynthia Lord. And it's the story of Lily, who lives in Maine with her family near a blueberry farm, and another girl named Selma, who's the daughter of Hispanic migrant workers who work on the farm. It's a super sensitive coming-of-age tale that explores the topics of friendship and racism and hope. And, of course, it also includes an adorable black lab named Lucky and some delicious references to blueberry recipes, which we all love, too. (laughs) Well, Allison, thank you for your recommendations. Again, Allison Murphy, a children's librarian over at Wallingford Public Library. This is where we live. We wanted to hear um, from more of our listeners uh, before we get back to our author and studio with us, uh, Chandra Prasad. Uh, Jennifer's calling. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Uh, What are you recommending? Hi, I'm a fan of really well-written historical fiction. And I will go back time and again to any of the Regency romances written by Georgia Heyer back in the 1940s and any of the Mrs. Polyfax books which deal with the Cold War in the 1960s. The authors were very, very skilled and detailed, but they were impeccable, rich writers. And I will just go back to these books time and time again and read them over and over. Well, thank you for those recommendations. We're going to try to uh, get all of these uh, to our listeners uh, via social media. I mentioned Chandra Prasad is with us. Uh, Her new book is called Damsel Fly. We were talking just a little bit about uh, the importance of having a diverse uh, number of characters in books, something that many of us growing up, we didn't notice that in the books that we were reading. But can you talk more, Chandra, about some of the unique identity questions that you're able uh, to uh, bring into uh, the stories of your characters. Absolutely. Um, I just wanted to go back to one excellent point that was made a few minutes ago, which is that one great thing that's happening in both general fiction and YA is that you have uh, characters of color and um, mixed-race characters, but they're not dealing with just trauma. They are regular characters woven into the fabric of the book, being themselves, you know, um, there was a very good editorial in the New York Times a few weeks ago about how um, an African-American mom was like, I'm so sick of reading about Martin Luther King Jr. to my daughter. That's the only book available. So I think that's a really good trend going on. And I, um, in Damselfly, certainly, um, I have a lot of racial diversity, but the focus is not necessarily on that racial diversity. Um, those are just characters in the books, and it, it comes into play sometimes. Um, pretty uh, early on in the book, you notice the different uh, backgrounds, the socioeconomic backgrounds of some of the students that are um, stuck on this island, and you even bring in, uh, you know, the question of mental illness in one of the one of the characters' families. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's a character named Anne Marie, and um, she's on the island, and the kids they have nothing from home. They have, you know, whatever they were were wearing uh, while they were on the plane, backpacks, clothing. And she's on a regular daily medication. Without that medication, she's having some real severe problems. And uh, and they're not going to get better because she doesn't have the medication she needs. And just like Piggy in Lord of the Flies, she becomes something of a scapegoat to the rest of the group. She's the one that's bullied. Um, and I actually have a very short passage here if you wanted me to, to read it. Sure, go ahead. To set it up, um, Anne-Marie is starting to have, you know um, – She's starting to have delusions. She's starting to see things that aren't there. And the antagonist of my book is called Ritika. She's a very, very charming, (laughs) manipulative, underhanded person. And um, she she is talking with Anne-Marie in this scene. 
The enemy, he's close, Anne-Marie said. That's why you have to be quiet. The more noise you make, the more hungry he gets. Head cocked to the side, Ritika took a step toward Anne-Marie. How do you know he's around here? I can feel him, Anne-Marie whispered, stepping back in the direction of the dark pit. She scanned the jungle urgently, attuned to an imminent danger only she could sense. I think you might be right, Ritika said. She took another step forward, and Anne-Marie another step back. I think he's coming for us. There's some suspense there. And again, we should mention to our listeners that uh, Chandra Prasad's excerpt of her new book, Damselflies, on our website, wmpr.org, slash where we live. Petra, we were talking about uh, uh, recommendations in the young adult genre. Uh, We we can't uh, forget to mention, uh, someone just tweeted us too, we can't forget to mention The Hate You Give, which became this phenomenal uh, bestseller, now being turned into a movie um, by Angie Thomas, tackling uh, the very question of, police brutality uh, and how a community, how a family deals with the sudden death of a black teenager in their lives. Can you talk a little bit about how some of these books are really challenging uh, what we're seeing in the mainstream, Petra? Uh, Gosh, that's a good question. Um, Challenging. So I wanted to kind of go back a little bit, actually, to sort of the idea of of telling stories that we don't expect. Um, and I wanted to, one of the things that I am really enjoying right now um, are Akata Witch and Akata Warrior by Nnedi Okorafor, which you can sort of maybe sum up as Harry Potter, except set in Nigeria. But um, it's their wonderful coming of age stories uh, about sort of children coming into their magical powers, but just woven through with a culture and a mindset that that you don't expect that's that's fresh and new and interesting and really just draws you in and makes you want to keep reading um and i think in that way you know that's uh, that's a sort of it's a fresh new thing that i think is really worth looking at uh, NPR uh, Books, I believe, also reviewed uh, how some children's books are tackling, again, uh, issues like uh, the refugee crisis. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. That That is an interesting new trend right now. Um, there are a lot of uh, publishers who really feel like the refugee crisis is something that they can step up and say something about. Um, and so there has been this trend of books for all ages, picture books, um, all the way up to sort of mid-grade and young adult novels that aim to humanize uh the refugee problem, to put a face on it, to say to kids, look, these are kids who are just like you, who had homes, who had parents, who had stuffed animals, who had it all ripped away from them. They're not these sort of faceless, scary people who are just coming to our country. They're they're human beings like you. Um, one of the books is called Marwan's Journey. It's a lovely picture book about a little boy um, and, his, and, and his family and the life that he lost. Um, another one uh, is Refugee by Alan Gratz. That uh, tells the story of three different refugees across three different time periods. Um, yeah, those are, that's a really interesting phenomenon that's going on right now. Uh, Petra Mayer, again, is editor at NPR Books. In studio with me, Connecticut-based author Chandra Prasad. Chandra, I believe you're also a mother. Uh, how do you uh, help your child or children uh, choose books, and what are they reading? Um, It's great for me to have kids because they help me understand the very genre that I'm writing in. And when um, back to what Petra was just saying about understanding um, immigration and and different different things that are going on. I mean, quite honestly, we're living in a terrifying time, a very horrifying, harrowing time. And it's hard for parents to explain some of the things that are happening and decisions that seem honestly illogical and cruel. Um, And I found that sometimes in fiction, 
um, it, it's a, it can be a tool to explain things going on now. So um, in terms of the refugee crisis, one book that was helpful for my kids in understanding that was the second book in the City of Ember series, um, and that's called The City of Sparks. Um, that is actually about a, a group of refugees coming into a different community. And the author deals with the situation in such a delicate, careful, perceptive way that it was able it allowed my kids to understand what was happening now in the United States. Well, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to continue giving you some book recommendations uh, for your summer reading list. After the break, we're going to talk about graphic novels. We're going to introduce you to a graphic novelist who has a background that may surprise you. Stay with us. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, most of us have read comic books growing up, but when was the last time you picked up a graphic novel? How about one written and illustrated by a theoretical physicist? Joining our conversation now is Dr. Clifford Johnson. He's a theoretical physicist at University of Southern California, and he's also the writer and illustrator of the nonfiction graphic novel called The Dialogues, Conversations about the Nature of the Universe, released uh, last fall from MIT Press. Uh, Clifford, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. So again, tell us a little bit about your background. What are the questions that you are trying to answer in your field of work? And then why try to convey some of what you're researching and thinking about in science in a graphic novel? Well, um, it's, it's sort of, in some ways, it's, it's, it's the standard professor gig uh, that I do. Uh, I, I do research and teach at a university. And when I'm doing research, it's, it's usually in the area of what I like to call origins questions. So what is everything made of? Where does it come from? Uh, I'm particularly interested in the origin of space and time, so I work on quantum aspects of uh, things like black holes and things that pertain to the very early universe. Uh, it's a very active and exciting area of uh, research that you sometimes hear about in the news. And I, I really love conveying uh, the excitement of science in general to people, not necessarily just my field, but, but uh, you know, many areas of science. And... And in addition to it just being telling you some interesting things about the science, I, I think it's really important to to help people uh, realize how science is done uh, and, and just to be sort of conversant with what science can and can't do. So I wanted a, a book that, that, that gets across all of those different things um, and uh, that I felt needed a different format um, for, for a variety of reasons. And in the end... I found that doing uh, uh, a set of dialogues instead of a sort of monologue from the scientist, you instead eavesdrop on a series of conversations about science, allows you to really get into the science in a, in a way that I, I think maybe is more accessible to more people. Um, it doesn't feel like a lecture. And you also, because you're witnessing conversations, you get to see the interconnectedness of science because conversations tend to wander around a bit. 
And so any particular one of these conversations may start in one place uh, and by the end have gotten to a place that perhaps you weren't anticipating. Mm. So making uh, science more accessible uh, to more people so that the idea that if they see that you're a theoretical physicist, they might be like, oh, this book may not be for me if I'm not science-minded, but you're really taking just the, the process of science and the concepts and drilling them down and making people ask certain questions, often how scientists uh, have conversations uh, before doing certain research. Exactly. And, you know, I think one of the things we're encouraged to do by book editors and so on and so forth is is clean things up a little bit too much, in my opinion. Um, and uh, I feel that showing a little bit more of how ideas develop in conversation, which is what actually leads to great discoveries in science, showing a bit more of that is, is very important to do. I don't think that's done enough. And also, I think also, you know, having the involvement of people talking about science who are just regular people out, out there in the world, as opposed to specialists in a, in a special environment, is also very uh, uh, un- not done enough. And I, I, I think I, I really wanted to show that. So, so you'll see people having conversations, and there are all kinds of people. And in view of what you were talking about earlier, I get to, you know, I I should also mention a very diverse selection of people um, in all kinds of familiar environments, cafes, museums, on buses and trains and things like that. And that really puts science out there in the world where it belongs and because it belongs to everybody. Uh, The illustrations are very well done. I should stress that you also you illustrated uh, this graphic novel as well. Take us to one of the stories. We have uh, uh, some pictures on our website at WMPR.org slash where we live. But there's a particular story where we're kind of eavesdropping on this conversation between siblings at home in their kitchen. Ah, right, yes. Um, people often wonder uh, why, why I have that story in there, because, it, you know, it isn't sort of talking about, you know, black holes or the early universe or all the stuff that you might think that I, sh- I sh- quote-unquote should be writing about. And it really is a very simple conversation between these siblings. They, they actually start arguing a little bit about something they observed. Um, uh, well, one of the, one of the, the little boy it gets very curious about why you know his 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 mom put some rice into a pan and it boils for a while and then when it comes out there's a ton more rice and you know we, we it's an everyday thing that you see that actually especially when you're young you see that for the first time needs some explanation so they actually start thinking about why that took place and you know in the course of the conversation they go from observing that to having competing ideas hypotheses about how that took uh, how that came about, and then at some point they go, well, you know, we can really test this out. Let's mm-hmm. let's do an experiment. So they design an experiment, and they go and ask their mom to whether they can can do the experiment in the kitchen. And um, I think that's possibly one of the most important stories in the book because it is the entire arc of science in in microcosm. Right? There's observation, there's hypothesis, and then there's uh, an, an experiment uh, that you go out to sort of test. Um, your ideas, and, and then you move on and, and, and learn from it. And so, uh, I, you know, I really, really wanted to have a story like that in there, which is about the process of science, um, rather than about sprinkling a bunch of gee whiz facts. <laughs> 
uh, that you can get from, from other sources. I'm speaking with Dr. Clifford Johnson. Uh, he's the author and illustrator of this uh, fantastic uh, graphic novel called The Dialogues, Conversations About the Nature of the Universe. I should mention to our listeners as well, uh, Clifford, that uh, within uh, these stories, there's also notes if people want to learn more about the particular concept uh, that this, uh, this dialogue is conveying. And there's also some equations in there, too. Oh yes, uh, you know quickly on the notes. Um, I I didn't want the 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 dialogue to turn into uh, you know a heavy detailed set of lectures um, because which would defeat the purpose of what I was trying to do. And conversations aren't really like that. You don't necessarily you know uh, go into that level of detail. Uh, so what I ended up doing was 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 having a set of notes. So as you go page by page and you find an interesting concept that's maybe touched on but not fully unpacked in the conversation, you might find at the end of that chapter some notes giving you uh, maybe uh, unpacking a little bit, but then saying, here's a whole bunch of other books that have been written over the years that expand on this particular aspect. So the whole book becomes also a resource to help you find other books. And then on the equation side of things, yes, the other standard thing that that you're supposed to do when you're writing a science book is not have equations because somehow people are going to be scared of of mathematics. There's a sort of math phobia that this... That this uh, you know this culture tends to tends to uh, uh, to go with uh, a little a little a little incorrectly in my opinion I, I I really wanted to push back against that and so what I what I have in there are occasions because you're really uh, equations because you're really seeing the tools that we use to do the science and you really need to have the tools available to to um, uh, to give people a sense of what's going on, not because the conversations need those tools, but because I get to show what we do, so you can really see what we're what we're um, what we're uh, using to discover these things. There's actually one story that actually says, "Hey, um, don't be afraid of these uh, uh, these things you're seeing, the equations. Let's actually go in and we can unpack." Uh, aspects of how these equations work without you actually having the expertise. And so it's really possible to have those things on the page and not be Mm -hmm. afraid of them and and uh, you either, you know you take what you can out of them and move on with the story. Clifford, we're almost out of time, uh, but um, as I mentioned earlier, when we think of graphic novels, we might be thinking of uh, sci- science fiction or fantasy. Um, what has been the reception since your graphic novel has come out? And and when you talk about making science more accessible, who are the people picking up your book? Well, um, I'm I'm happy to say that uh, the, the sorts of people who are engaging with this book are everything from. People who would normally go to that science section of the book and pick up, you know, a brief history of time or some other more more standard um, uh, uh, nonfiction science book, right through to people who um, uh, are, are familiar with graphic novels or people who are trying graphic novels for the first time because they, you know, they're realizing, uh, and not just because of my book, because of other books that the form of graphic uh, uh, narrative is a powerful form that hasn't got anything to do with superheroes and science fiction, yeah. what have you. Clifford, unfortunately, um, we got to leave it there, oh, yeah. but we uh, want, hopefully piqued our listeners' interest. Dr. Clifford Johnson, also thanks to editor NPR Books, Petra Mayer, and Chandra Prasad. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.